G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan that hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel, The Hunter's Campfire where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and good hunting. So good evening, Ian. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Another cold night. That's all right. Getting used to these now. Yeah, it's pretty wet here at the moment. They reckon we've got a few more days of it. It's not so cold. It doesn't get, you know, with the rain, it does kind of mild out the evening temperatures the daytime temperatures are much lower but miles out the evening temperatures so it's not too bad pretty busily cold we've had uh, a good run of it it's been good rain actually i was talking to a grazier today as part of what i do in my day job and he said i can't believe we're complaining about the water he said but are getting so far behind with all of the mud build up and what have you and um yeah. but yeah like we, we've had a bit of drizzle and, and bits and pieces but it was certainly a very cold wind coming through so um hopefully that'll scare some mice away or just freeze them in the field yeah that's to go little buggers okay so um i understand that you used some of my um in-depth discussion on purdy last week as an introduction so that being the case i'm going to give you another introduction on antique firearms before we begin and so what we have here. Oh, Just trying to get it in the camera view there. Look at that. Oh, okay. that's in perfect view, so, mate. That's in perfect view. Perfect view. So yep. I'll just spin around the back there so you can see. Bit of um, decorative work okay, there. So, so is this a replica or is this the real deal? So what we have here is a James Barber flintlock officer's pistol probable probable build date somewhere between 1726 and about 1740 so very much the real deal so you know getting close close to 300 years old getting close right okay so, so for those that don't cast their minds back 300 years um i'm actually reading books by um i forget the name of the author uh punk p-u-n-k-e he was the author of um uh the the movie i've got to remember the name of it now had um was the uh, leonardo dicaprio movie where he got mauled by a beer and a bear oh, and um yeah the revenant what's the name of it? the revenant so the author of the revenant was actually on um the media the podcast the other day when i was driving into brisbane and i, I was fascinated listening to this um, this guy talking to uh Ronella. and anyway so um, i went and bought the revenant and read it and there's a lot of stuff in there about the flintlock and you know the old the old rifles and and the things that they used to use um not being described as old rifles because in their day they were quite modern uh and then i picked up his his latest book that's just been released called ridgeline and it's um it's about one of the worst defeats in American history um, to the Indians, where they uh, coerced a, a group of soldiers that were told never to cross that ridge line, and they crossed that ridge line and 
it's the last that we've ever seen. But a lot of flintlock stuff in it. So back to my question, sorry. Um, if it was 300 and something years old, where did it come from? And in what sort of um, battles or history would it have been involved in? Okay, so as I said, assuming the the earliest it could be, and I can tell you relatively definitively, is 1727, and it's it's you know because we're working kind of backwards, built up to around the 1740s. And so, how do I know that? Well, on the lock plate, it's hard to see. Is the name is it named Barber? It's B A B A R B E R. Um, a bit, sorry, B-A-R, B-A-R, Barber. And the reason we know about that person is we can actually look that person up and we can, we can, we can understand the history of that person and so we can then date this gun. Because that one of the joys of English gun making is that England had for many, many hundreds of years a guild of gun makers. So there is very, very good records. And even if those records are, you know, they're, they're a little sketchy you at least get a picture of that person so the uh the reason i know that 1727 was that um james barber who made this he started using that name in 1727 before that he used an anglicized version so it was an er his, his true name was ar so when the uh the ar appears on a James built, you can know where it when it started. So he didn't use that before 1727. The other thing is on the um, proof stamps, there's actually his personal stamp. So there's the guild stamps, which are the proof and the mark stamp, but there's also his, which identifies it as one of his pistols. So by knowing that it's one of his pistols, by that identifying mark, and by understanding the, the name on the plate and the spelling he used in this particular instance, we can get a start date. The 1740s, 1750s is because of the style. That style, which is called, let's get that in camera there, an officer's pistol, started to fade out of usage by the late, 1750s because that's when in the english army or the you know our army of the english empire started to use patterned pistols so someone would have asked for this to be made this would have been right. a commission piece an officer because an officer in the english army had to fit themselves out it was the the, the requirement of for, so they would have asked for that to be made and by about 1760 even the guns that they asked to be made were basically based on the current pattern. So you just got like a much better version or a hand-built version of, of what was not mass-produced but at least batch-produced pistols. So And certainly things around the, 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 um, the scroll work and the shape of the barrel gives it that kind of time frame around that, uh, up to around the 1750s. Really, a couple of interesting things. You can see the big flare at the barrel, oh, sorry, at the butt end there, and that use of the brass that runs all the way up. That's because they, the English actually used to train to use a pistol as a club with the sword. So after your first shot, you would actually turn it around like that 
in your non-blade hand and actually use it to parry. So this idea was this was this was actually going to get hit probably by a sword. You're actually going to use it as a parry. So that's so you didn't kind of just shoot and drop it. You kept kept on using it, and that's why in a lot of the pistols you see the brass all the way around protecting the grip because they're actually using it that way. That's my oldest. Um, that's my oldest pistol. That's a that's a nice piece, isn't it? It's look for. The age of it, it's rem it's a remarkable piece. You know, it's still I won't dry fire it because it's very scary, but it cocks. And if I do, um, I do, it will release. I'm not going to let it's it functional. slip. I'm not. I'm, yeah. You shouldn't dry fire a new mode. You don't dry something dry fire something 300 years old. But yeah, no. it's it The barrel still clear. The the everything. It would still work. Would would or, or does have you have you dared try? No, no. you wouldn't want to risk it. No, that's it. That's it. If I wanted, yeah, you, know, you I, if I wanted to have that fun, I could buy something and go from there. So, and I got plenty more to look at. So we'll go through one each week. And look, next week, that's nice. <laughs> when you're talking about, um, you know, the the revenant. Actually, I've got a trade pistol which kind of has some linkage to that. So we'll have a look at that next week. That's good. In other news. COVID you know, smacked smack us hard. down again, sadly. <laughs> so you, you've got a pending trip that's coming up and we're waiting on bated breath as to whether you'll be allowed out of the state, which is a bit of sad news. Yeah, look, I'm I'm working on the theory that I'm going. Um, that you should. That's, that, you know, that's it. We're, we're going to be loaded. We're going to be packed. We're going to be ready to go. And as soon as we can go, we'll go. We'll do all the necessary paperwork and we'll get we'll get it done. Um, we're not going to any of the, the significant areas. We go obviously, you know, we're going to regional areas, but we've got still got to jump through some hoops. But we're working on the fact that we're going. It's a trip that I usually take my son with me every year. We've decided we're not going to do that simply because it's just going to be too. It's going to be two guys, you know, jumping in the car, driving all night type thing. So we won't be taking my boy, which is a bit of a shame, but um, I'll have another hunting trip with him this year sometime. So that's the only that's the only real downside. I won't be taking him. And this and this would have been his fourth year away too. So. Mm, I don't know. Oh, he'll be missing out, that's for sure. Yes, um, so what, what part of the country were you heading to? So we were up, heading into what's called the Upper Hunter okay. in New South Wales. So heading down the New England? Yeah, so the, the the bottom of the New England past Hamworth there, where it, um, and where we go is that you literally pass the Upper Hunter sign, you know, like you are now entering the Upper Hunter and then we're, we're off the road five, ten minutes after that. So yeah. it's right on the, the edge of um, the, the what I suppose they call the New England there. Yeah. Pal idea, and there's no doubt there's pigs there. Haven't seen them. And there is some talk of reds there too. I haven't seen those, but certainly seems bad idea. Mm, okay. Well, um, tonight we're going to talk about what has been my favourite um, state forest hunt down in New South Wales, and you'll be going straight past it on the way to the Upper, upper Hunter. A lot of people will head from Tamworth and hang a left just before you get into Tamworth City uh, and up into the hills uh, on the eastern side to a place called Nundal. Uh, a, a lot of people that are focused on state forest hunting will have heard of Nundal. 
uh, for good or for bad. Um, there's, there's lots of uh, discussion about whether it's a great park or a bad park or an overshot park or what have you park, but certainly it's um, one that I've spent a lot of time in and uh, over the last couple of years would have been there five, six, seven times easily um, with various different members of our club. So um, it's a great part and uh, yeah, one that I'm keen to, to dive into with you and, and just have a good chat about how we've uh, how we've hunted it and where we've stayed and, and some of the features around that. Yeah, look, Nundles are that whole Nundle system and it does encompass a number of state forests, um, but generally you just refer it to it as Nundle. I've hunted there, I think, four years in a row. I haven't hunted there for a while though, but I have, I have had some great success there um, on both deer and pig um, and both uh, buck and doe, so both meat animals and and got got a good buck out of there and certainly got a couple of good pigs out of there as well. It's And it's one of those forests, um, I'm the same, it's because it's so different to hunting in Queensland, it's actually quite, it's quite an interesting place, you know, heavy pine, a lot of still old growth pine, different climate altogether. You know, it can get damn cold up there. Actually, one year it wasn't snowing, but it was close. You know, it was sleety. Oh, it's it snowed there plenty of times. Yeah, just, of time. yeah. I just haven't been there, but I thought, you know, we're not we're not far off from this turning into snow, so it's a real different experience. Um, and yeah. I know, like all state forests, it's got, you know, the, the stories that it's got nothing in there, but I've never not seen an animal taken out of Nundle, and I've never not myself taken an animal, animal out of Nundle system. So it's, I think it's a producer. I think it's a great producer, in fact. Mm. I think it's a great, a, a great bit of land. Like you say, Hanging Rock borders Nundle, borders uh, Tuggalo, borders um, Terrible Billy, yeah. and uh, other parks further east as well. Um, Nuendok, I think, um, I will have pronounced that incorrectly. Yeah, no that was what you mean, yeah. But it's out there as well, uh, and it's a very large piece of land. Um, not as large as uh, the other park we spoke about, um, the Pilliga. No, but Pilliga, but I is, still think this, the it forest... It feels might... big. It feels every bit as big, in my in my view, because you can drive through so much of it, and... Uh, it's mountainous country. You know, you can be driving along the forest way and you can be looking down into huge gullies below and up the other side and over the other side and that's all still part of the park. It doesn't have the same land mass as the Pelican, there's no doubt about that, but it feels huge because mm. of the size of some of the, the hills and mountains in that system. So, yeah, it's great. It's very exciting. And like you say, it gets cold. Um, if you're planning your trip and looking at weather forecasting, Nundles the township at the bottom of the hill. So you need to scrub four or five degrees off their temperature on the forecast easily. Yeah. Um, we often reference hanging rocks uh, weather forecast instead. And, and, and it has its own system. It's like it's almost like the Victorian high country in some respects that you can get those four seasons quite easily through the day from howling wind to, to warm sunshine to blistering cold quite easily. So it fascinates me. It, like I said, it's got huge, big plantations that have been there for a long time, but also large stands of native eucalypt and gullies and creeks and rivers and things like that. So it's, yeah, it's got a real place for me. Okay, so if we were to hunt Nundle, 
and just before we were talking about even the different approaches in terms of the roads, how to get there. So if we're going to hunt Nundal, or if, if I'm a new hunter and I'm going to hunt Nundal in the first first instance, so if I'm leaving from Queensland and let's say Brisbane, what we're basically doing is we're heading down the New England Highway. So that's where we're going. Um, for me, um, I've always turned off just before you get to Tamworth. Um, I think it's called Moonby. I think that's a little place that you turn off. You turn off to the east and you go up into the head, into the into the, the hill country, and I think you go past a reservoir if I remember correctly. Yeah, and there's a dam get, there. Yep, that's right. You get to Nundle. You were saying that you you come in a different way. So which way have you you approached Nundle? Yes, I used to go the same way. The first time I went down to Nundle was with a, a an ADA Queensland. Uh, organised hunt, so it was all of our branches up in Queensland would go down there for the rut, uh, and uh, we joined up as a group down there. And uh, the tag along for that trip uh, went exactly the way that you've described, and from uh, near Tamworth there. Uh, but as I've travelled there more often, I've, I've found that you can shave close to an hour off that trip by uh, turning left uh, at Urella, outside yep. of Armadale. Uh, and uh, you follow that to Walker. And Walker's a, a beautiful town on that, um, what's the road called? The um, Thunderbolt Highway. Yeah, the Thunderbolt Way. Yep. It's down, yep, Thunderbolt Way. Heads down to the new, down off the New England towards the coast. Uh, but before you head down there, you get to Walker. And Walker was the best spot for me because they've got a fantastic coffee shop, bakery in the middle of town. Um, they've got all the amenities that you might need from a bottle shop, those sorts of things if, you, if you, you're lacking. Um, but also they've got a BP there, and that was important to me because I had a BP fuel card, so it was, I was always looking for BPs everywhere. Uh, but the BP has an after-hours payment system. It's a little tiny, one of these old NRMA, sort of fairly unbranded, um, dinky little servo, but uh, they've got a BP pay station. You can swipe your credit card in the middle of the night if that's where you are after the Friday at work heading down there. Um, you can fuel up, you can use, you know, fill your tanks of water up and things like that and then carry on. Straight through Walker uh, for about 40 kilometres, uh, you'll get to a sign that says turn right to Nundle. Mm -hmm. Turn right, go for 10 kilometres and that will take you to Forest Way. From Forest Way, you're you're literally, you know, 40 odd kilometres from where we stay and where I recommend anyone stays as a, as, as a new person to um, the park and that is Ponderosa. That's right. Ponderosa. Yep. And I, funnily enough, uh, I always thought that Ponderosa was named because of the ponds in the park. Like this is just, you know, oh, there's a big pond here. We'll call this Ponderosa because there is it's a beautiful big pond. Uh, ducks land on it and there's plenty of water in it and it's little creek systems and what have you. Um, what I didn't know is the uneducated Kiwi living here over in Australia is the Ponderosa Pines. It was actually the site of the old milling sawmill, yep. Ponderosa, and there's a um a, a reference to that uh, on a memorial uh, sign somewhere near the somewhere near Ponderosa campground. But it's a great campground. It's got um it's got a you know, long drop toilets, uh, which are I mean, I'm not going to say they're clean, but they're they're as clean as you could expect they would be. They're pretty well maintained. Um, you can draw water out of the creek for showers if you want to do that, and it's open campground. It's it's nestled amongst. Uh, you haven't been back there for a little while, so they've cleared a lot of Ponderosa. A lot of the dead pines have been cleared out, so it's quite open now. 
they still have some very big pines standing above it, so it's still a picture. Um, but they've done a bit of work uh, in Ponderosa itself, putting up new fences and signs and bits and pieces, and they've made it quite a pretty little park. But there's room there for probably, I don't know, 20 different camping groups in that area. Uh, it, it would cover maybe 10 acres of land. Oh, wow. Five to 10 acres. By the time you get into all the little spots around the Ponderosa Park itself, it's a reasonable little plot. And it's a no hunting zone smack bang in the middle of um, the border area, which is Nundle and Hanging Rock itself. So you could hunt straight out of Ponderosa if you want on foot. Um, there's been deer come into camp uh, in the years that we've been there in the middle of the night. Uh, there have been deer just through the trees. You could basically smell them, touch them. Uh, they were that close uh, rutting away. Uh, so it's it's right in the middle of, of, of the park, and it's, it's, it's a really great spot. Yeah, look, I was going to say that that is the pick of the places to stay there, simply because it's it's such it's so well located. Um, there is other places you camp there. It's a it's a big chunk of ground. You can find lots of places to camp, but the Ponderosa, as it's commonly known, is a great place to camp. As you were said, you're going in through um, through Urella and, and Walker. One of the things that used to be in Urella, which is now gone, was a really good hunting shop, um, Hunters Haven. Yeah. Right. They sold really good quality gear and they sold winter gear. So I used to actually, that's where I would buy all my winter gear. Uh, you know, I'd go down and we, you know, once a year I'd buy up. The other thing is there's a uh, pie shop still in Urella called the Pie Mechanic, which is one of the best pie shops in the country. Right, I'm writing that down on the notebook. Pie Don't mind a decent pie shop. <laughs> right there. So, yeah, Urella's a lovely little town. Um, so yeah, so that's so we get to we get to uh, uh, Nundle. There's so there's a couple of approaches, and recommendation is stay at the Ponderosa. The other reason is that the Ponderosa is probably only what 15 minute drive from the township of Nundle as well. Yeah, maybe about 15 minutes. Yeah, so because uh, Ian's route kind of goes from north to south. The Ponderosa is, and that's not exactly, uh, you know, cardinal bearings, but the the Ponderosa is at the bottom part or the southern part of the of the um, of the of the forest, and not too far from there is the township of Nundle, which in itself is quite a nice little township. There's a caravan park there, and there's a there's a, some. It's a it's one of those, like a lot of those uh, New England little small towns. They seem to kind of um, punch above their weight for what you can get in a small town in, mm. in that area. So there's also, and of course, if you needed to go to Tamworth, Tamworth's about an hour from that location. That's probably the closest major town from anywhere around there. So the Ponderosa puts you right at the start of, of, of your hunting blocks. So if I'm down there and we spoke about the weather, what, what do you think I need to take? Oh, look, if you're, it depends, right? Um, every time I go there, it's cold. Even mm. in, the, in the early spring and even late spring, heading towards summer, I've been there and it's been quite cool at night time. Um, so you need a pack for that. Um, the clouds come over there, you're in the clouds. They don't tend to be above you. You tend to be in them, very foggy, misty, 
you know, so you can end up wet just by walking along the road because you end up in in these really moist clouds. So you need to be prepared for all conditions going into into that location. We would hunt there more often in the autumn months because mm-hmm. that's the uh, the peak of the rut. Uh, as you said, I actually were talking about earlier before about uh, your, your hunt next week, but uh, this location has red deer and it has fallow deer and it has pigs and it has goats and there's um, been a hybrid um, elk slash wapiti red in there that's been let off a back end uh, off of one of the farms off the back of uh, near Togolo. Uh, that we'll talk a bit more about another superstition potentially yeah. Yeah. <laughs> by the so look on your face say, i've seen yeah. i've seen the animal i've seen um a photo of uh, a, a very elk looking animal coming out of there and there are others can attest to that as well but um i guess i bring that up because early early autumn is the red deer followed by the fallow rut so you've got mm-hmm. an extended period of time there and it is cold up there at that time of year we have photos of um, some of the state hunts that we've had up there with the ADA, uh, and they've been in the snow at that yeah. time. And if you weren't prepared for it, then you're going to have a miserable time. And it's bone-chilling cold. You know, when the when the wind comes up a little bit, it could be quite cool. Uh, it's damp underfoot quite often. It is muddy, gets your truck bogged. You know, very difficult to access. Um, the the only time I've ever come a cropper in a national park is in Nundal, and I was going uphill in a four-wheel drive, and I had a little bit of momentum. I was going uphill, and the road just slipped underneath my wheels, and I went straight off the bank, down the side. Um, in an uphill drift, my brakes wouldn't stop, nothing could stop me. It was that damp and slippery, and off I went in my fairly new vehicle. Uh, didn't do any damage, which was fine, but I had a reasonable walk out to the road to try and flag down someone who looked like a hunter, um, that had, you know, a, um, an overdressed four-wheel drive with with a winch and everything else on it uh, to come up there and help me. And this fellow that stopped, he had the nobliest tyres you've ever seen on a vehicle. He was the right car to help me, and he struggled to get up to where I was too. So um, you've just got to be careful, the gear that you take. And we can get more into gear, but I guess my message to answer your question is prepare for wet, prepare for cold, prepare for the whole lot. And it's that red soil too, which is, you know, diabolical when it gets wet. Um, so uh, I, I myself had a situation going downhill where we went, oh, look, we're not really steering at the moment. Oh, no. I know. Uh, let's just ride this out. And, hope. and then I thought, well, if we ride this out, we get to the bottom, then we're going to figure out how to get back out. And uh, exactly. we did. But exactly. it's, it, it, it's, it's certainly because it's all, well, I, I don't know if it's always, but it does, certainly my experience is, I've never been there when it's dry. I mean, I have I've been there when it's maybe not raining, but it's not dry. It's one of the it's got that real wintry feel to it. Everything just is wet all the time. So you know, open that fires. Very English feel to it, Mark. That's right. Open fires. Want to take a couple of pairs of boots. You know, re. You know, you want to be able to take gear that you could kind of rest and recycle whilst whilst you're out there because you obviously want to spend a lot of time hunting. Gators are very very handy there simply because they try and keep a bit of water off your boots and and off your legs but it is it is like that and where we are going it's the same and especially after a a good rain when the even the you know the grass is up everything is just wet so as you go through um you get wet and i found uh for places like nundal 
those the Kiwi bush shirts are kind of designed for that kind of one behind you. Uh, no, that's the a one, short one. You know, the long, long one, one really long ones. Yeah, that's a that's, oh, yeah. a that's a ranger. That's the short one, which is longish. But those ones that almost you know go down near your knees type thing that the bush shirt they come in real handy in that because you've just got something that's almost like a smock you you're covered and so when you get back to camp you can take off and dry it out i've got a um a stony creek one and i'm pretty sure there's a few photos of me wearing that with animals so it that's really as the anorectic that's why the anorectic comes down to my knees is is what gets um, brought out in those conditions uh i've I've not worn it anywhere as much as i have in underwear yeah uh, but you're right it can get wet so you're going to get down there so you you're whilst there is some water available obviously because it's wet there's you want to be careful about drinking water so you, you want to really again be self-sufficient and uh, not you know, for, for two reasons one spend as much time as hunting as you can and two because there's no real amenity so you want to be self-sufficient so you want to have plenty of fuel plenty of water and um also, it w- doesn't hurt maybe to on the way down, especially in the cooler months. You go past the petrol station and they're selling a, you know, a bag of firewood. It doesn't hurt to grab one of those. That's what I usually do: grab a bag. So when I get there, I've got dry wood to start with. I can start hunting that stuff as we go. But you know, make sure you've got some dry wood with you when you when you arrive. So you're gonna really want to prepare prepare for for a for a, a colder winter setup so you know this is where you know the tents and your camper vans and if you're swagging it something over your swag to keep the water off the swag so that's the kind of environment you're going to find yourself in so you know be prepared have you have your gear don't rely on the fact that you can nip in and out of town i mean you can if you want but that's probably not what you want to aim for um, you've got a nice campground, as I said, I haven't been there for a while, but it, it was very nice when I was there. But you really want to have your gear ready for that campground. So that's kind of how to get there and what I should take and also considering the weather, weather options. So, you know, as a Queenslander, you're going to be um, thermally challenged mm. uh, there. So what's the expectation then when I'm on the ground hunting? What are we going to see? Are we? Are you still yeah, so thinking about would, clothing? What would be? Uh, well, I've got my gear. I think I'm. I'm think I'm warm. I've got. You know, I've got. I've got my camp set up. I'm here. What kind of hunting am I going to experience in Nundle, and what kind of game am I going to see in Nundle? Or in yeah, the you've got, you, You've got an enormous range of options, which is great. So yeah, we'll call it the Nundle system. Hanging Rock, Nundle, all, all of those are part of that. They're all joined. They just have a border, right? So yeah. um, th- there is a huge range. If you're into long-distance shooting, then there's long-distance options because this is a um, a, a park that is built oh, – not built, but is bordered around forestry. So quite often you'll get there and, you know, what was there last year is completely different this year mm-hmm. because they've felled, you know, hundreds of acres of, of pines for timber and that timber's gone and now they've got little seedlings on and they've got fresh growth coming up and you'll have, you know, some five, six, seven hundred metre distances where deer are coming out of the uh, the bush of the, the late afternoon and onto that fresh pick. Um, so you, you can find yourself a nice vantage point and you can be looking out over that. Um, moving out of that cleared land, you then find that um, the smaller saplings, well, not saplings, but, you know, call them about a metre high, 
we found the fellow just love to get in there and build mm. scrapes in and around that. They can still see above it. They can still look out over their valley. They're more hidden, but you can get in there and you can find scrapes and you can mark scrapes and and, and build yourself a pattern. Log it in your journal, figure out what's going on and uh, and go back there day in, day out. And we've had quite a bit of success marking scrapes on GPSs, coming back to a group and getting one person to go and sit over that scrape and they'll come back with that buck. So that's the, the next layer. And that's sort of all in the pines. Then you've got the really big pines um, or, you know, from the meter all the way up to the really big pines. I've always found that the red deer like the pines. Okay. And I've always found that the fellow like the eucalypt. They like the native and the red deer like the pines. Maybe that's because the motherland of where the red deer came from had a lot more pine forest. Uh, than Australian eucalypt, no doubt, but whether that's in their genetic or not, I don't know. But that's just what I've noticed. If you're targeting a species, then you'll find, I have always found the reds in the pine areas. Um, so you'll you'll get into these big mature pine areas and they're huge plantations that you can walk in and you're dwarfed and it's dark and it's covered in needles and they've got lots of deadfall running down the centre, pig rootings everywhere. And you can just, every step you can see a big stag would stand up in front of you and say, oh, you know, I'm there and, and you've got to be ready for it. So you've got that opportunity as well. Moving out of that and into the eucalypt, I've always found that that's where the fellow are and the fellow like to find their way into big, deep, dark gullies where the creek systems are running through. And you find that the bucks hang on, hang out down there and the girls come to them. And if you can get into the deepest, darkest stuff that's away from a lot of the roads, then you're now in close quarter hunt country hunting you know you're within the 50 to 100 meter range you know if that uh and you're, you're basically bush stalking so there's a big range of stuff there and then you can get right up onto the tops of this it's still all, all planted it's still all trees you're not finding a lot of clearing up on the tops um again it's bush stalking but you're just finding different different groups in different habitat quite easily uh now that's just the deer you'll find goats in a section and then you'll find um, the pigs are just in and out of the blackberry all day. You can be walking down little tracks in some of the pine plantations and there's just pigs running back and forwards across those tracks quite frequently. So it's a, it's a bit of something for everybody. Depends what you like to do and, and you can target that specifically. Oh, look, I've never really thought about that way, but I, I agree with you with the, obviously, you know, when you were saying about the reds and the fallow, I was just thinking about all the fallow deer I shot. I, I've shot them in the I've shot them in the natural, you know, on mm. that free country where there's still na native native growth next to pines. They've been in that native growth. All the pigs I've shot have all been in the pine. That's right. That's what They're I find. The yeah. pine. Um, in the pine, there is a, a a very bright red mushroom that grows, and the With pigs love that stuff. They seem to love it. You'll you when you hit a patch of it, you know you'll just. Uh, first time I actually saw it, I was wondering what all these little red things were, and I realised it was these mushrooms. The pigs had just gone through and bulldozed whole areas. And it was one of the biggest diggings I'd ever seen because, and it was so big, we didn't really kind of. It took us a while to navigate which way they came and which way they, you know, where they come from and where they've been heading because it was just, it was just this huge chewed up. Um, ground underneath the pine so and you, you're right you know it's dark in those pines it's really dark 
Like it's airflow. eerily dark. Yeah. yeah, there doesn't seem to be much airflow. Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 quiet because you know you're walking on how many years of needles. So you know the ground's spongy. It um it though when there's a weather in there, it, it can be quite still in there. You know it it there's a true insulated property of those pines. So that's really different. I mean, to me, I always find that a really different experience about Nundle, and a really you know really something to look forward to getting into amongst those pines because it's just different. Mate. It's a different type of hunting. Mm. So yeah, and as I said, uh, I've never taken a red there, but I know people have taken a red there, and, I, and I'm thinking about where they're taking the red, and I'm going, yep, they're in the pine. That's right. Mm. I, I have seen uh, fallow through the pines, but I've always found that they're traversing, they're going through it, mm. and I and I have a suspicion that they probably bed in the pines because there's that extra layer of insulation. It's it seems mm. to be warmer in the pines than anywhere else. And I'd say they just they tend to get out of the pines during the day, and then you know um, they feed off the off where the eucalyptus and the grassy tussock stuff that naturally grows up underneath the eucalypt, um, and they prefer that over. I mean, there's not a lot of pick under the pines, but no. the last time I was in there, there were areas where some green flush was coming through, and I'm just not sure. I'm not um, scientific enough to get into what they do and they don't like, but that that's my observation. I've written that stuff down in my little book. And you can go back to it year after year and see where I've seen things, and and that's my little my little mind map. So, have you taken a red there? I haven't. No, I've carried one out for somebody. Um, I've seen them in there, um, but no, I haven't. I haven't shot a red in there. I'm almost always targeting fellow. Yeah, I I haven't seen a red in there. As I said, I've taken pigs and and fallow deer in there. So, let's kind of. Uh, talk a couple of a couple of successful hunts. So, so a successful fallow hunt for you. What's what, what's one of the the breakdown of a successful fallow hunt for you? Well, I um, I had a story. I actually wrote this one and went into a magazine. Um, um, and it was my buck fever hunt. And this was the first buck I really ever even targeted. Uh, mm-hmm. I was always focused on hunting for meat. And even though I was heading down to uh, these parks in the rut, that was the the camaraderie of camp and, you know, all of that stuff that I really enjoyed happened to be around the rut, but I was always focused on the meat. But there's a particular part of uh, Hanging Rock that I really like to to go to, and uh, I'd I'd mapped it out the year before, and I I felt that it was just perfect for deer, and I've got some beautiful photos of this area. But um, I was there for a week, and I targeted the specific ridgeline and it went down to a gully on either side, but I targeted this specific ridge line because I'd heard bucks croaking there on my last day last time. So I thought, wow, that's an amazing noise that fellow bucks will make, right? That that croaking sound that they make just haunted me for a year until I got back there. And I and I just worked the wind and made sure I was on the right side of this ridge line. It wasn't a high ridge line, but it was obviously one that was holding. There was plenty of sign around, plenty of browse. Uh, around you could see that things had been browsed off and there were no cattle in there and it, and it certainly wasn't um, littered with pig signs so um, it was a fair assumption that there were deer going through there um, and I I made my way to the end of this ridge line where I knew there's this beautiful big clearing down the center of the clearing there was a, a tree line but it was a would have been about a 10 acre clearing quite long and then across 
uh, about 100 meters or so. Um, and I and I and I scoped that out. Well, the and and I sort of mind mapped what I was going to do for the rest of the week. Went back into camp that afternoon, pretty pleased with what I'd found in terms of sign and where I thought things were going to be. Um, but that night we were talking in camp about the use of electronic devices or callers in yeah. state parks. It was a conversation that just happened around the camp, and there was a fellow there that wasn't part of our group, but he's like, yeah, I use them all the time. I thought, well, isn't this illegal? You know, there's some so there's some discussion, and we'll, we'll talk about the legalities of this in another session we have, hopefully with the, someone from the GLU, but um, there's an ongoing debate around using electronic things to en enhance your ability, and game callers has always been on the no-no list, right? But there's some... You know, there's some people that would contest that. But anyway, the conversation around the campfire was all about this game caller. And I said, look, this is, you know, it's, a, it's not on to use game callers in, in state forest. He said, oh, you know, no one's going to catch me. Whatever. Okay, that's fine. Where are you hunting? Showed me on the map. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's reasonably close to where I'm going to be hunting. Not dangerously close, but almost encroaching from a different angle to where I'm going to be. Back in my mind, went to bed, got up. In uh, the early hours of the morning, so that I was at ground zero in the dark and heading into the direction where I thought I was going to find deer still feeding out. And as I'm, the lights coming up, and I'm, I'm, I've picked the wind well, and I'm walking along this ridge line. This buck starts croaking, but it was so ridiculous. It was so loud, and it was so consistent, and it was just nonstop. And it would have been a solid 20 minutes. Cry, 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 and it was just, and I'm like, man, this guy is at the bottom of my my little gully, at the back of where I want to go, and he's got. It, it sounded like he had this thing plugged into an amp. He had to have had a generator down there. It was ridiculous how loud it was. Anyway, I was pretty pissed uh, that this was going on in, in the area that I dreamed about for a year. So I stomped my way to the end of the of the ridge line where I could overlook the gully, put all my blaze on put something on my rifle, slung it up over my back so that it was waving around so he could hear me coming and, and he wasn't going to stick his gun in you know, my direction. And I, and I crested the ridge and there was this big buck servicing five or six does. And it was him. It wasn't this guy down in the gully whatsoever. It was flat out this horny buck, you know, going nuts. And he was so loud. And it's the first time I've ever heard and being close to a buck in the wild. And I was just awestruck, absolutely awestruck. So I um, I did what every fairly new hunter had not really been in that situation before. This deer was 50 metres away. Just down the bottom there, I, I raised my rifle and I shot him. And he went down in a screaming heap right in front of my, in front of my eyes, fell into the bracken. And I cycled my bolt as I always do, put another round through, and I followed the, the hinds of the does as they ran off. And I thought, I'll take a meat deer as well. I can be greedy here because they don't know where I am. I thought, no, 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 no. I'm going to cherish this moment. This is the first uh, state forest buck that I've taken of any real calibre. Um, so I'm going to look after it. And I went back to the spot where he was and he was gone. Oh. And I, I can that sometime. I, I couldn't believe it. He was he was he was just gone. And I thought, no, that can't be right. So I wandered down to where he was, and in my mind's eye, I could see his antler thrashing on the ground. I could see it. 
like perfect. And I went down to the area and it was he just wasn't there. The far out. And I looked for an hour and a half, back and forwards, back and forwards, looked back up to where I shot, found the brass on the tree, got the picture. Yep, I'm in the right spot. He's just not there. And I couldn't understand it. And I was really annoyed. So I kicked dirt and rocks and shit all the way back to camp. I was so annoyed. That afternoon, I went back for another look. And um, sadly, along my way to go back for another look, um, some silly doe put her head up and um, she ended up in my backpack and on the way back to the car. And that didn't even make me feel good because I was still so annoyed about this buck. I got back to camp and went and got a couple of my mates and we went back there the next day to have another look because I was still quite certain. But in my mind's eye, the picture in my brain at that point, that thrashing antler turned into waving bracken fern. Right, it was no longer what I thought it was. I started to doubt myself, and we couldn't find it. But as we we're walking along that ridge line, croak, 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 there he was again, and, I, and he was he, he was alive. And I thought, okay, now I've got five more days to target this guy because I was there for quite some time. So I spent the next little while trying to target this deer over the next few days, and back every day. And I knew where he was going, and the wind would change slightly. And I changed my tacks, and eventually I was narrowing it down. And it got to the very last day and I still hadn't taken this guy. And my good hunting friend, Trevor, um, he said, right, we're going to go and we're going to get this buck. We're going to attack it from two different angles and we're going to get him. I said, okay, let's do it. We walked to the end of that area again where I first thought I had shot him. And we just sat down for a minute and we were just listening and seeing what was going on. And it's amazing when you immerse yourself a little bit and just take a breath that, that uh, nature sort of told us what was going on. Um, uh, Trevor is the biggest pig hunter I've ever met. He, he would sacrifice anything uh, hunting-wise for for a decent boar. Wow, this monster of a boar walked out right in front of us. And it's the, the biggest pig I've seen in my life. One of those typical chiseled mountain boars, huge big fronts and, you know, smaller back ends and, you know, big ivory sticking out. And he's, you know, looking to raise his rifle to shoot this pig. And I said, no, nah, mate. I said, we're chasing that buck today. You're leaving that pig alone. We're not ruining this buck for that pig. Two or three minutes later, there's a um, a murder of crows, so they call them. Yes, correct. Just over there in the trees. And and Trev's looked at me and I've looked at Trev and we said, you know what, my buck's over there. That pig's probably eating the back end out of that. And there's a mob of crows on there. And what, 25 metres from where I thought he was? No word of a lie, we walked down there as a ray of sunlight shone out of the clouds and onto the curled up antler of my buck still lying there, five days old and maggoty and disgusting. Um, but I got him. And <laughs> it was the same one that I had missed this entire time. So it was a it, it was it was a, a good um, way for me to learn how to hunt these animals. And just stick at, you know, if you take the time to target a specific gully and get to know the gully and understand the creeks and where the wind currents are going and all of those things over a period of time, you can be really successful and you can get to know a lot of the animals that are working in that area and target something specifically. And it's the first time I'd done that. So it was a great experience for me. In hindsight, going back to where I took the shot, I took an offhand shot at a, at a buck, at a stag, and I should never have done that. Directly to my right, there was a tree with a nice little branch sticking out I could have just leaned on. Just here next to me was a stump that I could have sat down behind and leaned on. And then there was a log lying on the ground. 
I had everything in my favour for that animal. And luckily I got him. But I don't condone offhand shooting in those sorts of situations whatsoever. Uh, if you can just take a chill pill for a second and have a look around and, you know, get to know what's what you can use to help you, then you're going you're gonna to make a better go at it. But that was my buck fever story. Um, and there's plenty of those that come out of Nunnall and Hanging Rock. There's some really great animals in there. Yeah. So, I mean, that pig would be dead. So you, oh, well, yeah, I, I, you wouldn't even have the opportunity to say, we're going to bang, we'll just drop this straight there. There we well, were. Well, a good fella. <laughs> and I, and I, I tell you what. We may have discussed that we weren't pig shooting. I would have dropped it. So that was it for me. Yeah. Well, well we, so, um, as soon as I found that fuck on the ground, I turned around to Trev to give him a high five and he was gone. He right. was after the pig. He didn't care about what was going on with the maggoty deer on the ground. But um, that was a good story. Great memory. So my buck was uh, – so I got uh, – he was in a um, – so we were hunting one of those natural, um, so native timber gullies. So we were heading down this gully. So we, we were following the track, contouring it down. It's very early in the morning, you know, dawn type thing. We were going down and, as you said, right down – in the gully there was uh two croaking bucks they were you know we could hear them but the wind was all wrong to go down to pursue them would have been you know a false economy we would have just pushed them off so we were sitting there listening to these two back and forth back and forth um and that you're right that croaking sound is a really quite interesting sound you know it's it's funny how deer kind of make sounds that don't align with deer you know the, the sound that comes out of them doesn't i mean for me um a bugling elk is even stranger you know an animal that size makes a sound that sounds like that so so we were hearing that you know that croaky broke type of rolling sound that they make and then if you if you will if that was in front of us we could hear that from behind i started to hear another one and i went oh hang on there's one behind there's three here we're in the middle of them mm. he was behind and the track contoured down into the gully but the gully itself was it was a cross section so the the two bucks were much below us and this one was above us and the wind was very it was right it was very good situation so i said well i'm going after him so the first thing I had to do was crawl under some blackberry because it was basically the bottom of this this quite steep hill was bordered by blackberry. Decided to crawl under it rather than try and climb over it. So literally got on the ground and found a little lowest point and crawled through it and then started to make my way up this very, very steep hill, uh, natural, you know, a native timber hill. And just as I was getting close to the top, there was a hell of a noise, a lot of crashing, and I thought, you know, you know, what's this? And I thought oh, the deer moved, and it was a wombat. It was yeah. a wombat, and what it was, yeah. it was this massive um, eucalypt that had fallen over, and he was living inside this. And I was making my way to this eucalypt as cover. I thought that'd be great cover. And there's a, you know, he, I disturbed him, and he came out, and I was a bit, oh, oh my god, I'm, I'm blown here. But then I realised he was, he was the perfect cover. So as he went crashing off, I just I started moving while he was whilst he while he was moving, I was moving because he was perfect cover. For whatever reason, that the sound of a of a crashing wombat did not affect the deer at all. This guy continued to croak, 
And finally, I got over the lip behind this big eucalypt and actually looked into where they were. And again, native timber and a bit of a clearing, and it was full of full of deer. Um, does everywhere. And all of a sudden, out he comes, just croaking, you know, doing that, head bobbing, mm. croaking, throwing the sound up in the air as they do, that wave action as he just came out. And he was not 50 metres away. He was that he was that close. And um, but what was behind him was was some really heavy cover. And I and I and I kind of got a little nervous and thought, if I if I heart lung him, he could very well go for a hundred metres before he drops and I'll lose him. So I thought I'm gonna have to shoulder shoot him. So it was one of those situations where I really had the chance and the time to think about what I was doing because he, no one, none of them knew I was there. The wind was perfect. I was just observing them behind this this cover, and uh, away they went. And he was doing that kind of back and forth action. He'd, he'd come out and he'd turn around and he'd come out. And the first time he turned around and went back in, I thought, oh, is, is he spotted me? No, he's just doing this lap. And as he came out again, I just put it up on his shoulder and bang and, sho and shouldered him. And it was, you know, it's great when you actually do that shot that you want to do. And he just nosedived, went boom, down in the ground. And then the rear end just followed later and bang. And then he rolled over. And strange enough, you know, the grass was not that particularly high, but when he rolled, the, um, the antlers disappeared. And even then I thought, oh no, you know, I even thought, What's happening? Isn't that amazing? I can't yeah. see him. It's weird, weird. I, and I often think about that. I know exactly what happened, but I lost sight of him and I went, <clears throat> came out of the grass and, you know, there he was. And it was, it, for me, that was, it was that kind of, it was a really interesting hunt in a way that it, one of those ones where all the pieces just fit together. Hmm. So, you know, you describe it, it sounded like, you know, it was a 10 minute walk up. It wasn't, but, the way it all worked, it worked and bang. And so I had my and the day before I, I'd taken a I'd taken a doe the day before. Um so um so yeah, I had my buck in, within that weekend, I had a bow and a, a doe and a buck. And the only thing went wrong was when I was gutting him, I, I nicked the bag and I got a, a bit of a bit of gut on my boots. Just... <laughs> that, that was about the only thing that went wrong. So yeah, and he's um He's down in the in the in the entryway to our house. He's down on the wall down there. Oh, nice! Nice little army buck. No, no monster, well, but he's he's a great deer. Funnily enough, this one here is the is the the buck from my buck fever story. This one. Okay. That one. Yeah, I can see. Yeah, so, um, see the out there. Yeah, he was he was a good one, and I, and I favour him. A good tip though, um, for those that are that are new to this, um. In my story, I talked about th that second day going back to find him and hearing him croak again. Well, clearly wasn't him. It was another one. And and every time a buck that I know of has been taken out of this area, and it'll be the same for, for all fellow, no doubt, but the, the the satellite buck that's hanging around there takes over that her that harem very, very quickly. Right? If you shoot him in the morning, there'll be a new buck there taking his place in the afternoon. Um, so... And that, that buck I've seen on more than one occasion is bigger than the one that we've taken. He might be younger, but in a lot of cases he's bigger. He's not fighting as much, and he's maybe using more of his energy for growing antler 
Um, so um, we, we've seen some really good animals come in as number two. So shoot the first one. And if and if you're greedy, go back for the second one in the afternoon yeah. or in the morning or set your buddy up because there's a very good chance that, that uh, there's going to be another one right there. Which well, I think reflects a couple of things. One is, you know, that it's a highly that whole the whole rut is a you know is a highly competitive mm. um, situation. You know, they are fighting literally fighting each other for for you know biological domination. That's what they're doing. They are literally at war with each other. Who's who's going to have the most the most days? So um, there's no love loss. So as soon as, as soon as there's a vacancy, there's not going to be, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll, let's mourn Freddie. No, straight in. <laughs> Stuff you, Freddie. That's right. And the second thing is it also reflects the fact that, the, you know, that there is those animals in waiting. That's, that's the, uh, I suppose, density of what you get at Nundle. Nundle has a very, very strong deer population. Lots of stories yeah. about how it got established and so on. And, you know, some of those stories are quite interesting and, and quite humorous. But the reality is there's lots of deer there. So yeah. if you're there yes. in a rut, you're, you're going to be in a really good chance to, to at least see, if not hear, uh, sorry, hear, if not see, if not take a, a buck. And mm. if you... If you uh, if you miss out, go back, go back. They they they're not changing their behaviour because of you, so much that their behaviour is being governed, you know, by their loins. So that's what's happening. Yeah, you know? and they won't move. You won't scare them off. Not no. even the girls. You won't scare them off. You might you might them. make them. You'll push them. Yeah, they might stay undercover for longer and come out more at night time. Uh, and you'll find that at the moment, like um, yes, it's 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 heavy. It, it, it's always had a lot of game. It receives probably more pressure now than ever. So the animals are getting more used to people coming in there. But that park is used by a lot more than hunters. So they're mm. used to vehicles. They're used to motorbikes. They're used to fossickers. They're used to forestry people. The car doesn't necessarily necessarily scare them. But when they hear gunshots, I think you'll find that they will they will go you know recede back into the bush line a little bit quicker than than normal. Um, in my last few trips there, I can't say, I can, I can, I can definitely say that every time I've been there, I've seen deer, but I can't say any longer that I've taken deer every time I've gone there. The last two years have been the hardest hunting in that park that I've ever seen, but that okay. was largely to do with the same things we spoke about with Severn and, and, and others. Um, it had a big, uh, the drought had a big impact mm. on, on that area and, the pressure had a lot of impact in it. And I also feel like COVID had a big impact on it in that um, we were all locked down for so long. When we were allowed out, we all went out. Yeah. And instead of, you know, some numbers going into that park frequently, that place was booked solid for months and months and months once we were allowed back out after COVID because it just happened to be just before, I think, the rut period. So... It got a lot of pressure, and then sadly it got absolutely wasted by wildfire. Yeah, you know. So you put those three things together, uh, and you're going to impact the herd. They're going to move. They're going to change, and that's exactly what has happened. Now, um, like I said, I've always seen the deer there, and, and even when I say there's not, there weren't many around last time I went. I saw 50, which is still a lot, um, but they were they were just after dark outside a shooting light or they were just in the neighbor's property 
So I know they were coming into the park, but I was seeing, you know, I heard of them on the neighbor's farmland. They were definitely around, there's no doubt. Uh, I left after one trip and uh, one of our branch members went back, um, hunted a strategy that we've we've always had. And um, he, he, he you know, he, he bagged a couple of animals, him and a friend. So that was fine. And I, and I know plenty of people are still taking them. But for me, it takes time. And mm. Nundal, I don't know, it's, it's different to some of the parks that I go to. It demands the respect of a bit of time to get to know some of the systems. It's not just a flat piece of land. You get to know a gully system. You get to know the forest. You get to know how to get in and out of it without the wind being a problem. And the more you sort of get to know your bit of ground, then the more successful you'll be, I've always found. Well, that kind of leads into my pig story there because, in a way, um, it, it, what happened was we had so it was Tim and I, and it was our first branch hunt to Nundle. So, the first time we ever went. And at the time, neither of us had a four wheel drive. And Tim said, I'm going to drive. And he had, he had literally a Mitsubishi Lancer. So we drove down, you know, all our gear, but we had all our camping gear. We just didn't have four-wheel drives at the time. Went down, um, set up, and, you know, we were the only one in the – because it was a state hunt, and I think it was like 20 people there. We were the only one who didn't have a four-wheel drive. Mm. So um, – Look at these guys. Yeah, so we literally drove out of camp and turned north on um, – Pil- uh, not Pilligafo, Nunnal Forest Way, drove a kilometre – up until we saw the first track kind of again we went we went right there's another track going to the right and at the time i think what it was was if i remember the roads actually a border and one side we couldn't hunt at the time so we were we were, we were on the on the ponderosa side of of nundle forest way drove up and literally mitsubishi lancer we said okay you can pull over there on the grass and that's as far as we can go so we got off the track out of the way of any traffic, you know, and pulled over on the grass, got out, started to walk through some native timber, uh, immediately uh, pushed some roos up or wallabies up, got into those and then got to the pine. And so, you know, went from relatively open native timber to pine country. First time ever been in pine country. Went, wow, this is Mm, completely different. This is weird, you know. You You know, timber in rows, and those rows, but you know, there's some of the trees still have got some marking, and they're, they're they've been marked a long time. These are these are heavy growth pines. So we walked in, and we were just walking through, and you know, we were keeping an eye on each other walking down the road. Just rows going, you know, both of us kind of. This is really different. This is very very different. And and I bet you felt like something was going to pop up at any second. We just saw. You just don't, yeah. It was like this is live, but you just, you know, but, but your vision is actually quite limited because you know you got all these rays. So we hit. That's where I first saw that all that red. I went, okay, what's this? And I went, okay, it's mushrooms, something. And then we hit these pig diggings, and we were just going, holy moly, you know. And it, what it was was it been a deadfall, so a tree had gone over and it created a bit of a clearing, and that's what had grown up through the clearing, and so. We were kind of spent some time trying to figure the angle of, you know, how do they, do they, which way do they come from, which way do they go? 
couldn't do it. So we kept moving the way we were going, which was kind of into the wind, but it was very, very, you know, very light breeze. And we hit a, a track, you know, we were looking, walking through the pine and literally a track appeared and there was about a five foot drop down of the track. And so we dropped down on the track and when we turned around, we could see where the pigs had gone. We could see, we oh, okay, this is the way they'd gone. You could see that they'd kicked that way. In front of us was a, a very small uh, a fern gully, very small fern gully, and then more pines. So down through the fern gully and started walking up through the pines. So, you know, we'd travel maybe 400, 500 metres at the most, walking up back into the pines, and there they were. The pigs were just there in the pines. And um, I just dropped two of them like, you know, just like that, bang, bang. And the, the, the big one, Got that, got that problem where, you know, saw the first pig, you know, saw the animal shot it. The third one burst from cover and it was big. And went, I went, okay, missed that one. And um, so we got those two pigs, took some meat off them, drove back to camp and realised how literally close we were to camp as crow flies because there was guys in camp go, well, we heard you shooting. And said, yeah, we shot some pigs. And they said, you sound like, yeah, we, you, you know, yeah, we weren't that far away. So we then spent the next part of that week in that area and we saw deer there. We never saw any more pigs there, but saw, you know, first fallow buck, saw him there, saw lots of does, uh, took a doe. I, I didn't take a doe, sorry. Tim took a doe. Uh, we spent our whole time just just exploring that very small area or that, that patch. And what we found is it ran down into this open country where it opened up. That's where the deer were on the transition. You know, there's other vehicle tracks that we didn't know about that we that we crossed over. We couldn't travel those vehicle tracks in the vehicle we were, but we kind of started to see, okay, this is a grid pattern. And as you said, learnt that area. And when we left, there was a guy there who wasn't doing particularly well. He was hunting by himself, didn't, you know. So we said, you know, hunt one of the last three or four days. He said, you can hunt with us in the afternoon. Here we took out. We did lots of exploring. But when we left, we said, look, go here. Go down there. And uh, he he didn't get it, but he got on a chance of a deer down there. And I said, yeah, they're just there. But and so you, quite, you know, it's about learning that kind of that space, that patch, and just exploring it. And it's big enough to do that. It's big enough to kind of go, I'm just going to focus here and yeah. see what I want. I mean, and when we were there, we did what we did in the end was that we would every morning go to this area and work this area. And in the afternoon, that's when we would go exploring. That's right. And I wanted to explore. We hit a mob of pigs. Oh. But then the car, that you know, literally they burst out in front of us, mob of pigs. Um, the guys jumped out and went after them, uh, saw deer again on the move. But we'd go to this one area every morning and just work it. And, you know, invariably you'd catch a sign of a deer or you'd see something. So working in that area, finding a little patch that you, you want to help, help uh, explore is a, is a really good idea. Yeah, what an amazing place, though. But you can mm. talk to anyone that's been there. I mean, I've been there for a, like a number of times over a number of years now, and certainly not as much as others that I know. But I've pulled out 20 animals, more. I've left pigs because I don't eat the pigs. 
you know, I've shot pigs in there, not that I, I make a habit of it, um, but, but I've got loads of stories about the animals. And, and mm. you know, you'll have the spot that you're used to going to, and I've got the spot I'm used to going to, and my other friends have got their little spot. It yeah. seems to me that the place has got game all through it. Uh, and it, it, it really, uh, I've said it and you've said it, and I'll say it again, you find a patch that looks and feels good that has got, you know, cover and uh, some sort of creek system, and it's got various different types of foliage from the native to the pine, and and, and just just work it, just work that bit of ground, and and you're going to find animals. Uh, I've I've never found people not find animals in these parks, so I don't think there's a magic formula. Although more often now I'm saying, um, due to the pressure and the fact that the herds spread out a bit because of the fires and what uh, and what's happened in there, uh, the the animals that we're seeing are further from the roads. And that sounds like basic 101 stuff, that animals aren't going to be by the roads. But they are. You'll drive down Forest Way and you'll see them hop across in front of you and, you know, you'll see them from the car. So they're definitely in and around those areas. But we've certainly found in recent times that the more uncomfortable you're going to get by getting away from the track and away from the car and exerting the effort and potentially staking out a fly camp and, doing a bit further and things like that, the more successful you're going to be. Uh, and that's proven itself a few times over the last couple of years. Yeah, well, look, when we when we hunted there, that's how we hunted. So we, uh, the first couple of years, we didn't have an ability to, to go too far off track. So we literally pulled up and started walking. That's what we did. There was one morning, I'm sure there was a buck in a tree stand. Um, he was in there. We just didn't get a chance to get him um you know, we could hear him, but we just couldn't see him. But that's exactly what we did. We would just pull up and we would just start walking. And, you know, you don't have to walk far. You don't have to walk kilometres and kilometres, but you do need to go into the scrub. So head into the scrub. Um, and you find, you know, game trails, you find natural clearings and things like that and explore those. And then, you call, of course, you hit old vehicle tracks that, you know, that are no longer in use. And animals are like anyone else. If they can walk on a track, they'll walk on a track rather than push through scrub. So oh, you always know, find sign on the tracks. That's right. That's right. It's because because it's it's a it's a matter of you know energy you know used for travel. It's it's easy to travel on a track. So finding those uh, so finding like disused tracks in those areas of disused tracks is always really a really good um, a good chance of seeing game. In fact, I was thinking once we uh, hunted in Pilliga and we came across a network of tracks that we couldn't we didn't know how you would access these networks we literally walked into the scrub and hit these tracks and um we don't know if it was uh, by design or by by you know um situation but a huge log or huge um uh eucalypt had fallen over the track and was blocking the track i don't know if they dropped it on purpose or what um because it was old it cracked and it, it splintered but it was obviously there been there for a long time and maybe that's what they did maybe they blocked it off for 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 a fire reason or something like that but on the other side of this log was some of them the the most you know heavily used goat sign i'd ever seen the goats are just decided to turn this this track into their own. They had this log to back up against and they were just 
everywhere and they were then they weren't too we picked them up they weren't too far from that log in the scrub again but so you know animals were they're opportunistic so if you find old track systems if you find motorbike tracks uh, remember i shot a pig we, we, we were in nundle we were exploring we were following a motorbike track and it led to another area and, and that's where we found the pig so get out there and keep walking and keep moving and you will see game in nundle there's no doubt about it and the great thing about it, because it's so cold, too, game prep becomes a little bit easier there, you know? Oh, yeah. It's a place where you can actually hang a deer outside overnight and not be too worried about it. Though, the quolls will get them. Which is, which is a fantastic thing that they are there, but they will. I've actually got a photo of, uh, of, of one of the quolls, you know, going, going, trying to get up, get on a, uh, on a hanging carcass. So having them outside, you know, wrapping them in, in um, calico to keep any kind of bugs off them perfect way to 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 start the process of 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 getting yourself some really high quality game meat so that's one of the one of the benefits of nundle too you can't do that everywhere else but that's where one place you can do it and ponderosa we 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 tend to um drop a um a water pump into the creek uh just off a battery and that that feeds um a a hot shower that we usually set up when we're there for a week which is great just a camping shower but also allows you to pump water and um hanging the deer in the trees and then prepping them and then being able to clean up after yourself it's it's, yeah. it's really good to have a space in there a, a lot of the trees have got hooks banged into them um over the years where you know you can hang them up there uh it's quite interesting uh, i said before that the place is used by uh, hunters and fosterkers and motorbike riders and all sorts of enthusiasts horse people come in there um, all sorts of people so you've got to watch out a little bit of you know when you when you're hunting in there but uh, we had a situation that we were there and this year that we were hunting you know saying that everyone seems to find deer um, this was you know two or three years ago before the fires um, the group would go out you know 30 hunters that were in camp that all go off into their little ways and then you'd eventually all start coming back to camp then you'd wait and then another car would come in and everyone would be looking to see, you know, what was stacked up on the top of his ute or what was in the tray hanging off the bat. And almost everybody at some point in time got a yoo and a cheer from the crowd as they came in successful. It did absolutely awesome camaraderie um, around the camp. And most of the guys you don't know, but they're part of the organisation that we belong to. Um, but this one particular day, uh, we had three or four deer hanging in the trees around our camp. We had a big head mounted on the top of one of the camper trailers, you know, as the, uh, you know, in front of the entrance. And these people came in in their in their van and they stopped for a chat. And they're like, "Oh, how long have you guys been here?" And like, "Oh, you know, been here for a week." And you know, all polite and all of those sorts of things. And they said, "Well, have you found anything?" And we all just looked at each other and went, "You know, isn't it obvious?" And they looked up and these were they were fossickers. And they were looking for for gems and like have you man they couldn't get in their van fast enough and leave i can tell you now we weren't all dressed in cams it was all you know in, in civvies and what have you so uh, it was pretty funny but um be respectful because everyone uses that space yeah but, it um, is it's, it's, it's a multi in fact i remember one year the guy said there was mushroom you know oh yeah know. yeah yeah, yeah. pine mushroom mushroom hunters or whatever it is but they were yeah they were in there and and it was a polish group of people yeah and 
the the guys they actually wanted they wanted game meat they actually said hey would you swap some mushrooms for right. game meat and the guys are thinking oh we don't want mushrooms but sure you can have some game meat so you know they they were completely comfortable with the, the game meat but yeah. that's you know you're right there's a couple of events that um Nundal all allows you to almost have like that uh that idea of a deer camp you can you can yeah. have that you can have you can be there for a week you can be pretty comfortable um you know one thing about being cold is you know it, you don't sweat it's it is it's more comfortable once once you're warm it is much more comfortable you can you know you can eat well you can relax and you can have that kind of deer camp feel and that's what i certainly have enjoyed about the the four or five times i've been to, to nundle that deer camp feel where there's a big group of people and you're all you know you're all you're all very happy when each other's having success yeah and it's a it's a great way to bring the young ones into it because mm. deer camp is deer camp um, things happen in the deer camp and that we're butchering animals and you know we've had people come that don't hunt but they they love the camp component mm. of it they're older older guys that have been around the ADA for a while and they come in purely to show their skills and and help the young guys when deer come in my very first trip there I I took three animals three deer out on my very first um trip into into um hanging rock and when I got back to camp I mean I hadn't even put the handbrake on and this guy was all right let's go I'm here and this is what I'm here to do and I'm going to break this thing down and show you exactly what to do and it's fantastic and we still see that happen when we get the big camps but what i'm now enjoying i've got mr three-year-old with me and your boys are a bit older than that now but um certainly you know this year i took him along and he was in the camp with the men around the fire toasting a marshmallow cooking some damper breaking down a deer you know not being there um with the the full violence of of taking an animal and and subjecting him to that quite yet as a three-year-old i'm I'm not, I'm not scared of that, but I'm mindful that I don't want to shock him. Um, but he can start to be part of that process with the butchering and, and, and those bits and pieces, and he's quite okay with it. And next year we'll do a little bit more and a little bit more, and it's a great way to bring them in. And we're seeing a younger crowd come through. We're seeing a lot more um, partners, husbands and wives or boyfriends and girlfriends getting into the sport. And some in some cases and i'm just this might sound wildly sexist but the the women don't necessarily want to do the killing not that this is a bloodthirsty sport but they don't want to pull the trigger they but they do want to be part of harvesting a good quality protein for the table and we're finding more couples getting involved in this pastime to to do that and deer camp is a great place to do it because you know there's lots of story there's lots of banter there's lots of fun yeah look about that with you know with the with children and so on i found that for me the fishing was the transition Mm. understanding that when you know when when because my boys have fish from an early age and understanding that you know fish equate to the table and understanding the process of how that happens i i felt that that's made that transition to to you know warm-blooded game animals much more comfortable for my boy especially my yeah. oldest boy. um he, you know he he completely under you know he still kind of goes but you know he understands exactly what's happening and, and and he doesn't do it in any kind of uh you know way that's he's 
he doesn't enjoy it or he doesn't but you know like anything he kind of goes oh there's guts there type thing um and you know and so when he's at the age that he's been with us a couple of times when we've taken animals and you know pass him a knife and say okay just do a little bit you know back straps are pretty good you know just just, yeah. just nick yeah. along there just nick along there just nick along there and understand that and i mean but that's the joy of having that kind of structure where there's there's a series of adults and you're all kind of supporting each other and so you know there's a bit of load carrying with with the younger guys and and, and those people who aren't hunting because there's a support mechanism and that you know that deer camp idea i think that's a fantastic idea to introduce people so yeah if you're if you're wanting to go hunting there is a number of um number of uh trips to places like nundle through the ada uh, especially ada in queensland and so you know that's a good way to start as well if you didn't want to if you didn't want to launch off by yourself going to one of those events would certainly give you a great start yeah you got 30 blokes in camp with different setups you know you don't need to have all the gear you know, no. you can start in this thing with, with without a, a huge investment. Um, the one thing that I, I really love about this series of parks is that it's great for rifles. It's a beautiful bow hunting block. In amongst mm. those pines, every couple of metres, you've got something to hide behind. You know, and they're, they're there all in a row, planted like they should be. And it's a great place for people to get into bow hunting. Um, and I certainly like bow hunting there. Um, it's, it's, it's also open to doggers. You know the guys that are yeah. coming in at night time and they can dog it under no. spotlight so, right. so that's fine as well so it's it's got something for everybody uh, but you, if you can get into a camp like that and have a look around other people's setup you'll soon learn what works and what doesn't i was counseling not counseling but giving some advice to a fella today in our branch who was asking about wet weathers and, I, and i've told him what i believe he should get and he's like oh a bit expensive I said yeah but you know what wet weathers is like your reperb you know when you need it you need it and you don't want it yeah. leaking you really don't skimp on some stuff and you'll learn some of that when you go to a place like this because you know people will be bringing out some of their top quality equipment that they only get to use every now and then because it demands that in, in a place like Nundle. that's a really good point because um exactly what happened to me um I used to use a set of binoculars. They were, you know, they were good quality store-bought binoculars. Um, when I used them in Nundle for the first time, I realised they weren't good for hunting. And <laughs> when I was in the pine, I went, I can't see anything. I thought, that's it. This is where that, this is where that high-quality low-light glass comes into play. You know, this is this is the difference. Between something nice in a store and you're in a shopping center and you look at them you hang up and go oh these things are crystal clear you know in all this artificial light or you look out through a window and it's it's it's, it's a bright daylight outside and you go and this is fantastic when you're in that situation that's when you go okay that's why you buy gear like that that's why you spend the money on that kind of stuff because that is the test of it and uh, that 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 was it for me the optics nundle was the place that i first learnt that optics matter. That's a good point. Very good point. Um, something I didn't say before, um, and I didn't notice this when I first started going into Ponderosa, but um, be aware that the leeches are there. Oh, you're, um, well, you're going to get those. 
It's, yeah, it's, I'd never seen them there before. I got them in Tugalo. I'd never had them in Hangin Rock or in Nundal around oh, Ponderosa, but we've had some pretty fun leech experiences in there. So uh, take yourself a nice bottle of table pouring salt, and that's the easiest way to get them off. Um, that's not an old wives' tale. They'll release and they'll fall off, and then you can do whatever you want to make sure that they don't bite you again. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, don't pull them off. They'll leave their teeth in there, and they'll become an itchy bloody spot on your leg for the next... I don't know, however many months. Um, and don't let them get too far up your leg because they can get quite hectic. Um, anyway, that, that was my last tip, Mark. <laughs> That's true. It, it, is, it is the perfect environment for them. You know, it's not temperate, but it's 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 certainly it's got a rainforest type of feel to it. So yeah, the leeches are there, that's for sure. And yeah. Um I don't think I've ever had too many problems with ticks there. Maybe in summer might be different. Never had much problem with ticks, but certainly leeches there. But then again, never had any too many problems with things like you know snakes or mosquitoes or anything or flies like that. There, but again, I think that might be the the fact that I'm generally there in the colder months. But certainly, yeah, leeches are there. That's for sure. Yeah, and no, I've never had major issues with blowflies. Even hanging, um, even hanging here in the trees for four or five days has has never been an issue. If you get it in the shade. Uh, in a shady area, there's there's not going to get a lot of sun. It's going to stay at a reasonable temperature for quite a few days, and that's all be, always been fine. Have stepped on around uh, a couple of snakes, um, oh but the, but they're not common. You're right. I've been there a lot of times, and there's only been a couple, but they're there. They're certainly there. Um, so keep your eye out for those. Uh, and um, like you said, wombats. Um, don't be scared of the wombat noise because it actually helps you. I say the same about the roos and the wallabies. As long as you're not scaring them, they know you're there and you're not encroaching on, on them too quickly. They make noise just like you do. And um, don't be afraid if you snap a twig that your game's up because it's not the case. Um, right. These animals do it all the time. So, But my message is get out there and do it. It's a fantastic park. It's in the New England area. So for Queenslanders, it's going to take you, it's going to take you six hours to get down there, to yeah. be honest with you, if not a little bit more from Brisbane. Um, but if you're going for a period of time, I can I can guarantee you by the time that first fire is going and you and you're talking about how long that trip was, you'll forget all about it and you'll be well immersed in uh, a, a wonderful space. So and it, it's not a hard drive, but it might be six hours, but it's not a hard drive. No, no not at all. Straight down the highway, you know, lots of amenities along the way. You don't need to rush it; you'll get there. And uh, yeah, once you're in there, it's well worth worth the effort. So yeah, that's that's. That's probably about it for me. On I can't think of anything else with um, anything else with with Nundle or the Nundle system. No. But if there are, are questions, um, just just like any other one, um, feel free to ask them. Email address is thehunterscampfire at gmail dot com. Uh, fire your questions into there, and uh, we'll be sure to answer them um, potentially in a Q and A uh, to follow this one, or, or we'll directly answer them um, via return email. So that's fine. Um, but with that, I think probably done for Nundal. I think we should say that uh, that's our, our our first e email address. So if you're listening, um, please use it. it. We've set it up specifically for this podcast. So yeah, you'll you'll get both Ian and I, and it'll it give us a great idea of of how we can help you. So um, we're pretty excited that we've got that there and established. So. Um, the invitation is there to use it. Please contact us and we'll see what we can do. Excellent. Righto. Talk to you in a week. You will talk. Uh, that's right. Yes, you will. And so 
new antique gun next time and uh hopefully we'll have a guest to talk about um one of the forest hunts or we'll cover off on another forest we'll see how we go yeah good luck on friday hopefully you get away uh we'll be thinking of you and uh, uh we'll see the photos uh, or the evidence of it uh at the beginning of our next chat i really do hope so all right mate good on you good luck safe travels thanks very much mate and uh speak to Bye. you again Bye.